Hello, everybody. This is Fraser Rice, and welcome back to the Fraser Rice Podcast. We're lucky enough today to have John Williams, the head of the Williams Law Group and the co-founder of InkNow.com. We're going to talk a little bit about Delaware law, entity management, and some of the things that go into making decisions for entrepreneurs and the various factors that they look at when forming businesses. Welcome aboard, John. Thank you, Fraser, for having me. So talk a little bit about your background. We both went to the same law school, so we know each other from that. How did you decide on locating back in Delaware, and how did your background in law sort of inform some of the choices you made going forward? Well, Fraser, when I was in college, I had a driveway seal coating business and sort of an entrepreneurial background, and I wanted to do something in business, and I went to law school thinking, I'm going to start a business, and I've got three years to think of what I'm going to do. Well, <laughs> you get out of law school, what are you going to do? You're going to become a lawyer. So I was fortunate, though, also to have another opportunity, which is working with my father and learning from him. He'd been practicing since 1960 and was well-respected as a tax lawyer and business lawyer. And so I went back and worked for him. And he also had an incorporation service on the side, which uh, we'd just taken online. And so that was another sort of e-commerce business that we were running alongside the law firm as I was learning to practice law. So the background I had from Emory, you know, with you and all the folks down there was very helpful and, you know, helped me practice law and then also... You know, help me get into this, this business or more of the entrepreneurial side and helping other entrepreneurs. Sounds similar to me. I went down there thinking I wanted to practice law, and then I practiced for a couple of years and got out as fast as I could. So uh, it sounds like you've kept your toe in the water pretty closely with it. Uh, talk a little bit about what you do at the law firm and how you advise people. So the law firm, we have mostly local clients or some national and international clients as well. It's everything from litigation involving business litigation, the Court of Chancery. We had a four-day trial in April uh, involving a family dispute. I say it's you know, the dysfunctional families that are uh, beneficiaries of estates, and also we do professional divorces where business partners aren't getting along, and I always say the only ship that doesn't float is a partnership. <laughs> We've run into that uh, in my business as well, where uh, things that started out running smoothly, uh, circumstances change, as they say. Everyone starts off on the same page, but they go in different directions. And then at some point, you know, you try to document things for easy exits as much as you can through agreements. But inevitably, there may be some tension or other things that come up. So uh, as part of your day, how much of your day do you spend lawyering? And then how much of it do you spend managing uh, your entity management business? It's about half and half. The real question is what, how much of my nights and weekends are spent <laughs> doing which? Uh, the plight of the entrepreneur. <laughs> so most of my... My day hours, we have sort of a bigger staff on the incorporation side, and there's a lot more volume. So it's more care and feeding when it comes to running the incorporation service during the day. And then, you know, you try to put in at least half the day for the law firm, and sometimes it comes after hours. My dad said, uh, you know, what are you going to specialize in? Well, you specialize in what comes through the door. And so sometimes it gets busy, and sometimes it's, it's not as busy. So when there's sort of the ebb and flow of the law firm, it allows me to kind of go back and forth and focus more on the incorporation service during those times. And so how do you market the incorporation service? Uh, I know it's different when you're a local lawyer, let's say, and you build up your reputation within your community. Uh, the incorporation service, especially with Delaware being such an advantageous location to put a business, uh, you know, it strikes me you have to go national on that. How do you think about that? Well, we have a targeted incorporation service, meaning we focus mainly on Delaware. That's 90-plus percent of our business. Even though it says Delaware on it, that's really a national brand. It's sort of the Bergdorf Goodman of incorporating. So people from all over the country want to, and all over the world really want to come to Delaware and form companies. So uh, if we just focused on our local market, we'd have a very small you know, customer base. We have 16,000 customers, 
And, you know, most of those are from around the country, especially in major metropolitan areas like New York. And it's, uh, it's a lot of internet-based marketing. So a lot of entrepreneurs that, you know, know they want to form a Delaware LLC, not sure. They've never worked with the company before. They may have seen ads on television or radio for LegalZoom. And, you know, maybe they trust them or don't. And they're looking for some other options. And, and they kind of stumble upon us based on search engine optimization or paid ads that we, we put on the internet. So, John, one thing that always pops up when I talk to people, they, they want to form a business. Let's say they wanted to form a recording studio, and they need to be in New York uh, because that's where the talent is, that's where their property is, where they're going to be housing the equipment, that type of thing. What's the advantage of using a Delaware entity for the business? Well, the state you incorporate in, the law of that state you're incorporating controls the internal affairs of the company. What that means is if you form a business in New York, then you're subject to New York laws for the internal workings, which include the liability shield. If you're in New York and you form a business in Delaware, although you're operating in New York, the internal affairs and that liability shield is really governed by Delaware law. And so you want to go to a state which has what I call the thickest bulletproof jacket or so the thickest shield, and Delaware is the gold standard when it comes to protecting business owners from liabilities associated with their business. Whereas some states like Pennsylvania or California, the liability shield is like Swiss cheese. And so if you go form a business in your home state, you think you have protection, you think you have it. And then what happens is the creditor comes in, they say, oh, you know, they're not following certain formalities or they're not adequately capitalized. And, and there's all these different theories that you can use in different states to pierce the veil and then have that creditor go after the personal assets, the owner. And so having a Delaware shield helps to sort of insulate against that type of liability. Is there any other flexibility as well that Delaware provides? I know that New York can be cantankerous as it relates to running your business, and I would think Delaware would be an interesting spot to take care of that. You know, it, I go to a conference every year. They call it the LLC Institute. It's um, What it is is there's lawyers from all over the country, and they give updates on their states. And usually by the end, you know, everyone's focusing on Delaware. And you go to ABA conferences, everyone focuses on Delaware. You go to law school, you learn Delaware corporate law. Well, you, you basically, they try to do updates in different states. In New York, they get to New York and say, well, you know, they're trying to basically increase the publication requirements. And New York's the only state where you have to publish in the newspaper that you've formed a business. And it's, it's a really archaic thing, but it's something where it's representative of the climate here, where the legislature is interested in trying to help the publishers out and sort of line their pockets and has nothing to do with helping the businesses. And so in Delaware, it's a very business-friendly state. And so do you want to form a state where they're they have all these different public interests and these lobbyists that are not looking out for your best interests, they're looking out for the plaintiff's attorneys, whereas in Delaware, they're really kind of trying to be balanced. And it's under constitutional law, a business is basically a person. And where that person is born or where that business is started, it's very instrumental to the business. Now, there could be a mom and pop you know, food truck where the guy says, oh, there's no real advantage in going to Delaware. And so what you usually see is nine times out of 10, businesses will form in their home state, even though it's not always advisable, they do it. And then one time out of 10, this guy, the entrepreneur, whether it's a man or a woman, they say, you know, maybe I'll look at these other states. And they go to Delaware and they say, oh, my gosh, these are great laws. I want to opt into this. This is going to be great for the future of my business. And it may not necessarily be cheaper all the time. It's about the same in cost. It could be a little bit more even. But the protection is what you're buying. It's like buying a better insurance policy. You know, do you go to the cheapest insurance company or do you look at sort of the policy and try to get a better policy? Well, it sounds like corporate law is one of Delaware's great exports. They call it the goose that laid the golden egg. Delaware corporate law, it's not only the fees collected from formations, which is only less than 100 bucks for the actual filing fees, and then the fees collected on an annual basis to maintain the company, which is another two to $300. But then there's also, if the companies, like especially big companies, like the Fortune 500 companies, if they go under, 
um, or uh, actually it's more of their stockholders get lost, then, they, then there's what they call a cheat money. Or even if they have um, gift cards that get lost, that money goes back to the state of incorporation if they don't know where that person's located. And so Delaware basically reaps in, you know, I don't want to say that's the reason they don't have a sales tax because they get almost a third of their budget as a result of, you know, this corporate franchise. So administratively, are there any other advantages with Delaware law? One thing that Delaware has also is unless you're actually doing business in Delaware, there's no separate tax return to file in Delaware. You still have to file a return where you're located, you're headquartered, but there's no separate tax return for the business to file in Delaware. Otherwise, most of the tax advantages and so on are really more federal law, and you're not going to skip out in the IRS by forming a Delaware LLC or any other state for that matter. It's really more the liability protection, the reason people form these businesses. So when you're talking to entrepreneurs, how do you get them through the discussion of whether to incorporate versus using an LLC versus using a partnership? You know, we we really wrestled on this one where, uh, you know, in our minds, we used to kind of go back and forth and what are the advantages of a corporation versus an LLC and who should use which one. And what it really came down to is unless you know that you need to be in a corporation, you should really be in an LLC. And most folks who don't have experience in this business will be much better served being in an LLC. It's easier to administer. There aren't as many dance steps. There aren't as many meetings. There aren't as many requirements like that. Plus, the LLC comes with an operating agreement, which is a partnership agreement, like a prenuptial agreement. So if the partners don't get along, it provides for what's going to happen when they eventually go separate ways. And that basically helps keep you out of court and it kind of keeps things smooth. So plus it has tax advantages where it starts as a pass-through, which is what most people want, but you can even elect into corporate tax status like an S-corp or a C-corp. So it's just a, it has this incredible flexibility through the, the governing document called the operating agreement and through the tax flexibility. And so I think that's one of the reasons why the LLC has grown so much to be 75% of all the new business formations. And so if I'm someone, if I'm from New York or a different state, and I've heard a lot about why Delaware is interesting and better to incorporate or form an LLC in, uh, what are the advantages there? Why why is Delaware developed so nicely? So there's a historical reason, and that is mainly because of the, the court system in the state. They have a separate court system for equity matters, which turn out to be mostly business matters, and that's called the Court of Chancery. The judges there are not elected. They're appointed by the governor, and the governor selects the best business attorneys in the state to be the chancellor and vice chancellors on this court. And so as a result, you get very predictable, very thorough, thought-out outcomes as opposed to some states where you go in and the judge is you know, handling criminal law one day, slip and fall the next day, and then he has no experience with business law, and they come and they try to decide your case, and it has nothing to do with the, the actual merits of your case. It's sort of arbitrary. And so you don't want to go to a judge where you're flipping the coin. Instead, you go get a good, efficient business outcome. It happens very quickly. The courts are very efficient. There's only one level of appeals, the Supreme Court, which can also happen quickly. And so that level of competence and speed is really one of the things that really sets Delaware apart. When you deal with larger businesses, Fortune 500, that certainty is nice, too. You have a jurisprudence that you can rely on. You know, it's actually a good point. So, you know, we talk about the historical reasons, like I said, the court, even though the, historically the big businesses were attracted to Delaware, m- modernly the small businesses are kind of catching the, the tail end of that, which is uh, they're also getting the benefits of incorporating in Delaware. And some of that's through the doctrine that has you know, been developed for the big companies, like something called the business judgment rule. And what that does is it protects business owners from being second-guessed on business decisions. So if you, you make a lot of risky decisions, sometimes you, you try to do the best you can to make a good decision, but you're taking chances. There's no certainty involved in these business decisions. 
some states will like go back and sort of look back on this decision and say, oh, that wasn't good. You're personally liable to the stockholder. Whereas in Delaware, there's something called the business judgment rule, where as long as you're not lining your own pockets with the deal, the manager, then the stockholders can't come back and question that later. And so that's one part of the shield that really helps protect management in Delaware. And, and so they really like that. It's very attractive to them, and it provides a lot of comfort for them. And so as you were sort of modernizing Inc. Now, uh, you went from, I think, maybe more of a paper-based incorporation service, and then you've taken over the internet, and you're competing against LegalZoom and others. Talk about some of the factors that went into that. I'm sure you looked at it and said, you know, we're going to need to compete, and we need to do that by uh, expanding our technological prowess. Uh, talk a little bit about how you uh, analyzed uh, the market and what you did to uh, take advantage of it. So some of this has just kind of grown over time. You know, you asked a question earlier about what need do we serve that's basically unfulfilled in the marketplace? And historically, there were a couple big companies that offered incorporation services before the legal Zoom came along, and that was Corporation Trust and Corporation Service Company. And they're still around and still a duopoly where they control, you know, half the market. But they're not run by lawyers, and so, uh, you know, they'll serve as a registered agent. But what they historically have not done as much of is, is the internal documentation for your company. So if you're forming a corporation, they may give you a very standard set of bylaws. They may not give you all the minutes you need. They expect lawyers to be involved in deals and do those internal documents on their own. And those big service companies just get involved more in the public documents. Whereas on our side, we try to help people give them what we call signature-ready documents, where for a corporation, there's minutes involved and um, stock certificates. Everything's just basically signature-ready by the time we send it out. And they know that there's a Delaware attorney behind it. My dad says, if you're not up on it, you're down on it. So we specialize in Delaware. We know Delaware inside and out. And our documents are basically prepared by attorneys. And so a lot of these online services, it's hard to really rely on the documents they're providing. And so when, uh, when you're a new business and you're, uh, let's say that their needs are more complicated than they think about up front as far as forming their business, do they talk to a lawyer when they deal with you, or is it nice to have the law firm as a backdrop in case there's extra nuance? From our background, we see the advantage of using a lawyer in particular transactions, whereas a lot of the average consumers say, I should do this myself. Lawyers are just costs. It's just an expense, and I'd like to basically avoid lawyers at all costs. So we don't even try to market ourselves. We don't practice law through the InkNow service, but sometimes it does lead to law practice, occasionally like maybe 1% of the cases there's um, issues that go up that go beyond simply forming the business, but it's interesting that um, like even when we market ourselves through Inc. Now, we although we are lawyers, we try not to say that you know we're going to be their lawyer, and we try not to sort of emphasize that lawyer fact because we've tested out different marketing, and and that kind of turns people off actually when they they assume that it's going to be expensive if a lawyer is involved, whereas we're very competitive on pricing, so. Uh, we try to not to overemphasize the lawyer side of it. And so uh, with a business that's located in Delaware, you know, sort of near Philadelphia, near D.C., uh, proximate to New York, what's it like staffing a business like that? Is there plenty of talent to choose from or do you find yourself having to reach out and do extra special things to get people? You know, it's fascinating. We have this position. It's called an incorporation specialist. And you go to any other jurisdiction almost in the country and no one knows what you're talking about, whereas in Delaware – because there are so many incorporation services based in Delaware and then people that have worked and been trained in these other companies, that they come in knowing a lot about corporate filings, LLCs, and so on. And they may not know a lot about the, the legal reasons for doing it, and they may not know a lot about tax decisions and so on. But what they do know is they know all the procedures of the state. And so there's almost like a really nice market for running a business like this because there's a big talent pool of people that 
you know, were, were let go or basically left on their own from other service companies. And there's so many based in Delaware that it's not really hard to attract people. So you're essentially running two businesses. You're helping to run a law firm and you're running this incorporation business. What are the major differences between the two? So the major difference is incorporation service is really a, it's an e-commerce business, which is people go online, they order a company, we provide the service, and it's pretty much done. We're still active as the registered agent on an ongoing basis, but we do not um, actively engage. So there's not a heavy relationship side to the business on the incorporation side. Occasionally we have repeat customers, we do develop relationships with them. But on the law firm side, it's very relationship-based where you you know, the client wants to trust the attorney and they need to have trust in the competence of the attorney and you have to prove yourself and get results. And then that develops the relationship over time so that the combination of the relationship and getting results leads to basically, you know, keeping them in the door and keeping them happy. And so, um, you know, the other side of it is, you know, it's fee for service, whereas the incorporation service, it's a flat fee service. The law firm, it's all based on the time spent. Uh, we can try to estimate what things cost depending on what type of service we're providing, but it's, it's just a... Um, it's a different type of relationship we have. We usually see people uh, about half the time. We know our clients. We know them well. They live locally. Occasionally, we're doing like big real estate opinions. Where we don't actually meet people, but we're talking to them frequently and we're emailing them. So you, you do develop um, more relationships with the law firm. And, and I think the thing we really like about the law firm is we want our clients to be successful. And so we take a great deal of satisfaction in that. And, and part of it is um, – you know, developing that relationship and sort of sharing in their success is sort of, it's a way to sort of be rewarded. And it's also intellectually challenging because a lot of what you do in the incorporation service becomes very routine. And although there's interesting sides to it, and there's certainly interesting people and personalities, it runs the gamut. And the names these people come up with are just just the craziest names you can even imagine for their businesses. <laughs> and I feel bad because people aren't familiar with what they're doing. And so they'll ask these crazy questions too. But on the law firm side, it's... um. Uh, it's just it's a different kind of intellectual challenge where you know, you're running to issues you haven't run into before. There's research involved. It's just it's it's a sort of a more of a uh, a puzzle, if you will. Well, so to segue into something uh, that successful people are getting involved in more and more vis-a-vis -vis philanthropy, uh, a case came up. Mark Zuckerberg, our big buddy from Facebook, uh, has made a big splash with his philanthropic uh, endeavors. And the thing that I found interesting is that he's using an LLC as the structure around which he's practicing his philanthropy and developing uh, his plans for giving away his money. In my world, typically you'd go through a foundation or some sort of apparatus like that where there are definite tax benefits. Are you starting to see anything like that in your world? Um, or are you advising clients as it relates to uh, philanthropy uh, about using LLCs? So LLCs are frequently used for real estate. And a lot of what we do in sort of wealth management involves real estate. So inevitably, there's some real estate, some LLCs involved. And also in estate planning, sometimes in trusts, certain trusts hold assets, and a lot of times it's convenient to hold them through LLCs. So we do see them, but the Mark Zuckerberg example is a little different because if you're really charitably inclined, usually you'd set up your own private nonprofit or else you'd maybe run a fund out of another nonprofit. Like, for example, a thing called a Delaware Community Foundation has funds where you can basically not have to administer it yourself. They administer it, but you can get donations and so on and, and run it the way you want to run it. But it doesn't have as much flexibility as Mark Zuckerberg's LLC because he doesn't get the tax benefits as far as we can tell. Of course, we don't really know what Mark Zuckerberg's LLC does or right. says <laughs> because that's not public. It's, in other words, what's public with an LLC is a certificate of formation which only says who the agent is. And um, it doesn't even say who owns the company or who manages the company. And so uh, all we know about Mark Zuckerberg's LLC is basically what he's told us. 
and he hasn't shown us the LLC agreement. Well, if we saw the LLC agreement, we would know exactly you know, what the restrictions are and so on. But based on his representations, it sounds like he does have this sort of philanthropic bend to him. He doesn't sound particularly concerned about taxes, probably because he's got so much money. But he probably wants the flexibility of not being you know, pigeonholed into doing things that are simply philanthropic if he sees that there's things that may not be charitable, but they're worthwhile for society or some larger purpose. And so he wants to be able to, you know, reprogram this LLC, if you will. And that's one of the things with LLCs, you can change the operating agreement. If it's, it's only Mark's operating agreement, he can go back and change it whenever he wants. Right. And it sounds like uh, part of that flexibility, if it's non-philanthropic, I guess, uh, you know, if he has political causes that he wants to give to, uh, that may not, that doesn't really work in a philanthropic foundation. Uh, you've got to have 501c3s that are specifically earmarked for that. Uh, that might be an example. That's a really good point. Yeah. And charitable, like 501c3s or nonprofit, um, qualify with the IRS as a public charity. Uh, there are a lot of restrictions on what they can do in terms of fundraising and, and for political causes. So they, they can't do a lot of influencing legislation, lobbying, and so on. And although there are other types of 501c's that can do that type of activity, the, the charity one where donations to it are deductible by the donor, that you can't do too much political activity. Right. So uh, something that's popped up and I don't know much about are the public benefit corps in Delaware. I don't, uh, I've, I haven't come across that in my profession. Uh, I know that there's certainly subchapter S and C corporations and that the public benefit corporation has been chartered really for broader purposes. Uh, wh- what have you seen on that front? So it's interesting. We don't actively market public benefit corporations in terms of our Inc. Now service, but we've still get orders for them. People will basically come to us and say, I want one of these. And uh, we set them up. And there really isn't too much difference between a public benefit corporation and a traditional general corporation. Um, one difference is it has to state in the certificate of incorporation what the public benefit is. And it could be almost anything you want it to be. And then there's another requirement under law where every two years, you have to provide a report to the stockholder saying what you've done to forward this public benefit. But the question comes up, well, why would people do this? One of the, re- the reasons they set up this legislation was because in a general corporation, you have a duty to basically maximize profits for your stockholders. And if you start giving away all your money, then you're committing waste and you can get sued for that. And so the idea was to be able to allow this particular benefit and not essentially let the management get sued for giving towards you know, a better cause. Uh, the only problem is it's not really regulated. So no one, no one from the public, the attorney general doesn't come in and say, I want to make sure you're doing what you said you were going to do. The only real enforcement mechanism is from the stockholders themselves. So if you just have a public benefit corporation, it doesn't actually need to provide a public benefit to the extent that no one else is really looking for that in the public. There's no stock return or tax return you file that requires the public benefit you know, be disclosed. It's simply a report to the stockholders. And so some companies that really want to do sort of good, if you will, they go to what's called B-Lab. And B-Lab, you pay a fee, but they certify you as a public benefit corporation or B-Corp. And that's one way to, to basically demonstrate to the public that you've proven that you are, in fact, doing something good. And they'll go back and audit you occasionally. Now, I talked to some other folks about that, and they say, well, the only thing B-Lab has is the first question is, have you paid our fee? So, <laughs> so you wonder you know, how much they're out for themselves, you know. And, um, but it is, I think it's, it's good to have a flexible type of corporate setup where you can do things for the public that are good. And, you know, you think of Patagonia or Ben and Jerry's, they do kind of things that kind of are a little more philanthropic and, uh, we would like sort of our corporations to be more warm and fuzzy. And maybe that's the direction things are going, even if they don't, aren't held to a high standard in terms of accounting. I think it's nice to at least know that some companies have that flexibility. 
And so we've enjoyed helping people with that. And it's sort of interesting the way the laws develop because you don't actually have to have a corporate ending on a public benefit corporation. You could call it Fraser Rice, a public benefit corporation, but the official name is Fraser Rice. I like all of that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting in my world too that the uh, social impact and impact investing are major trends. And so people want their investing dollar to do more than just make money now. I think a lot of people are interested in – their investing dollar uh, having a larger impact, socially speaking, or at the very least not being a part of uh, bad acts, whether investing in guns or liquor, or some, those are some of the traditional routes. Speaking of trends and demographic trends, uh, so most of our customers, I hate to say it, but they're basically middle-aged white men. And those are the people that are forming most of the companies in America, at least from our perspective. And it'd be nice to have other demographic groups kind of forming companies in equal numbers, because obviously that helps promote the economy and helps to different sectors and different uh, minorities and so on. And it's interesting, but with the public benefit corporation, the people that are doing those are millennials. You know, you, you talk about hiring millennials and what are millennials looking for, you know, as employees. But it's interesting, what are they looking for as employers? What are they looking for if they're running a business? And they love this, it, the, some of the ones I've talked to, this whole public benefit concept where they have the flexibility to kind of do whatever they want to try to help sort of a larger cause and still be sort of out for themselves and trying to build their business. Well, as you said before, it's nice to have a stamp of approval, no matter how uh, new or undefined as it is, that uh, that you're trying to do something a bit broader than, than pursuing the almighty dollar. Now, just to put in perspective, they're taking a little while to sort of catch on, if you will. Like, for example, Delaware has about a million companies, about 750,000 of them are LLCs. They just formed the public benefit list, created it uh, a couple of years ago, and there's probably maybe 200 public benefit corporations. So it's taking a while to sort of catch on, but the governor likes the idea. I, he may even talk about that in a state of the state, which is going to go out in a couple of days, about some of the new laws he's put into effect, and he kind of is really proud of this one. It's just a question of whether people are really going to sort of bite on that. I have a feeling it's going to get some traction. I, I think the social impact and impact investing themes – I think once somebody big does something, you know, if a Zuckerberg or uh, Peter Thiel or somebody like that uh, grabs a hold of it, I think the the idea could take off. Uh, Again, it sounds like it's pretty new legislation, so people may not want to box themselves in with something that's heretofore unproven, but uh, I think there's a good idea in there somewhere. Yeah, and they're trying to make it easier to get into them also. They're saying one reason they haven't – you haven't seen as many is, well, there's so many companies that are already in existence – and so it's not so much you're starting a new business and want it to be a public benefit, but what about the ones that are already out there that are big businesses? And it used to be a requirement that it's 70 or sorry, 90% of all stockholders had to approve for it to become a public benefit corporation. But that threshold is so high, like no other threshold in corporate law is 90%. And so they, they're talking about dialing it back to 75%. I can't remember where that legislation's gone through already. But that will make it easier for people to convert their companies into public benefit corporations. Interesting. So uh, one a little bit more controversial topic and something I see in New York uh, with property ownership in LLCs. And so the Treasury is uh, taking a firmer look at ultimate beneficial owners of LLCs. Uh, how does that impact your practice? Are you seeing uh, a rush to use entities for property ownership or is that slowing down? Well, it's sort of a loaded question or multi-part question here. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> maybe I could split it up and take it in, in chunks. But um, so first it has to do with the law on beneficial owners. And there have been some attempts by Treasury to crack down on this. And they, they, it's within their powers under the Patriot Act. So, but they haven't done this nationwide because it's very politically unpopular. Because what's going to happen is 
if they said every corporation LLC out there has to disclose not only who the owners are, but the owners of the owners and the owners of the owners of the owners, and if it's a trust that owns it, who all the beneficiaries are, and you have to update this every so often, and it's just a huge administrative burden in order to keep up with this uh, you know, beneficial owner requirement. Uh, and so it's been something which the states have kicked, basically put resistance into. And part of that is because the costs associated with keeping these ownership records, it's really driven actually mostly internationally because uh, most countries around the world, they make you disclose who the owners are, or keep an updated list of owners in some sort of a public registry. And, and then the banks basically don't require a tremendous amount of information about their companies when they set them up because they figure, well, the state has all this information. Whereas in the U.S., it's kind of the opposite, where it's really easy to form a corporation. There's really no disclosure of who the owners or managers are. But when you go to a bank, they always want to know who the people are. And so uh, you've gotten to a situation where internationally, the U.S. is in a position where um, they're sort of out of sync with the other countries. And U.S. is trying to encourage entrepreneurism, and part of this make it really easy to form a company. And if you start larding on all these additional requirements that really have very little economic benefit to the country – then you're just creating costs to starting business, which is probably not good. So we, that's one of the reasons we're not encouraging it. Now, if the law did pass, I think we're actually pretty well situated to try to comply with it because obviously, you know, we're lawyers and we're, we hopefully know what we're doing. And so some of the other smaller players may get pushed out of the market. But I'm not here to basically try to you know, push people out of the market. We want to encourage people to incorporate. We want to encourage people to get into business. And some of these really, you wonder whether uh, these stories about you know money laundering and so on are really happening as often as as uh, you see in the New York Times because it's they can only usually cite one or two anecdotal you know examples of of this happening whereas you know there's literally millions of businesses out there doing you know very legitimate things that are growing our country's economy at all times so well we're seeing it in our end it, it, it's so hard to open a bank account in many ways we require almost blood type and retinal scan and thumbprint before things go through. It'd be nice if there'd be some sort of happy balance where we could get a little more information about what's happening underneath, but at the same time, we don't choke off the uh, the entrepreneurism that helps to drive things. Well, it's interesting. So the real problem here has nothing to do with the banks. It has to do with uh, a former president of the United States, Richard Nixon. And that goes back to Watergate because basically there are certain investigations being done involving IRS filings, like tax filings at that point. And there, were, there was a lot of concern that the government, or basically the police, if you will, were going in and looking at people's tax returns. And the tax returns would clearly show who owns businesses and you know, it has all that information in it. But after Watergate, they said, we don't want the, um, the FBI and other investigating companies to be able to go in and look at all of your IRS records. They create this huge wall between any investigative bureau and the IRS. And, um, and so what's happened is, because the perfectly legitimate you know, investigations, they, they're trying to basically get information, but they can't go to their own government to get the information they need. So they're trying to figure out other ways around that. And part of it is, well, let's go to the Secretary of State where there's certain filings, or let's go some other way. But all that Congress would have to do is basically pass a law that says that the FBI can go into your IRS records. And I don't know whether that's good or bad, but it would certainly make it a lot easier to avoid all this sort of circumvention, trying to create other ways to solve the problem. Well, it certainly created a lot of cottage industries, uh, and I see it around New York. We've got their whole law firms and accounting firms, et cetera, uh, built upon structuring ownership, not just for tax purposes, but for privacy purposes and other worthwhile uh, components. Uh, but it seems like a lot of lost brain power to me. Yeah, and we don't promote privacy. Um, you know, in fact, you know, as, an, as a registered agent, so the name of the that we are given of the members and managers of, a, of an LLC, for example – 
that information is not public record, but we will cooperate with any investigation. So if anyone comes in from a, a federal investigator, you know, we don't even need a subpoena. We'll, we'll basically, you know, give them what they need right away. But I think it's hard to tell in this, in this new sort of NSA era, you know, what are the motivations of, is it really sort of the Treasury wanting to sort of go after certain people? Or is it they're trying to create this sort of master grid, if you will, of everyone's information, everything they own, and they want to be able to connect all the dots instantaneously through a computer without having to manually do it the old-fashioned way, where you show up at an office and you get information. As far as I can tell, when, the, when these investigators are looking for information, they find it, but it takes a while. And sometimes the investigators aren't experts in corporate law, and so it's a little bit um, frustrating to the extent they're not familiar with that. But I think no one's really, as far as I can see, looking for privacy from the feds. It's mostly just privacy from having you know, their neighbors know what's going on. And, um, you know, everyone around the block knows what all your assets are. It's kind of, you know, you don't, you know, put your bank statement or your salary, you know, posted to your mailbox. So why should they know basically all your, your investments, whether it's through private companies, basically posted publicly? Well, privacy is going to be a very expensive commodity in the future. I think it's something that people are going to value more and more as, as these barriers keep coming down. I agree with you on that. So in closing here, are there any other particular trends that are interesting that you're seeing with Delaware, either as a corporate law jurisdiction or, or even from an entrepreneurship business perspective? Well, Delaware is always trying to stay on the cutting edge, and they're always innovating. It's really unique atmosphere in the legislature, which I didn't get to earlier, and that is uh, the business. There's a lot of feedback. So if, if, for example, publicly traded companies, you know, go through a merger and they fail to file one little certificate with the state of Delaware to basically change the stock on a corporation, and then it used to be they'd have to go back and redo the whole merger again because they messed this one little document filing. And they created this new law, which is a certificate of validation. And what that does allows companies that did everything else properly but failed to file one little document to go back and basically fix the stock amendment. But that's just a small example of things that Delaware is doing to try to maintain the cutting edge here. One of the things that I've seen a lot of are series LLCs, and I, it's a little technical to get into in this particular podcast, but what the series LLC does is it allows you to have many entities contained within sort of one larger umbrella. And so you could set up a master sort of mothership series and then have these little daughter LLCs that aren't separately filed with the Secretary of State. They're just simply part of your private operating agreement. And it's sort of an interesting thing that started in Delaware. Now 15 states have it. And now I'm going to Tucson, Arizona next week to help rewrite the uniform laws so that other states may adopt this as well. But, but it's, it's, it's an interesting, you think like, you know, corporations are corporations and LLCs are LLCs, but it's actually constantly changing. And even since when I got involved, there was only a few LLCs and lots of corporations. Now it's only a few corporations and lots of LLCs. To follow up on the daughter LLC component there, is that for someone, if they have an umbrella business, but say they have a lot of different real estate holdings, that allows each piece of real estate to have its own entity, either for administrative purposes or liability shielding purposes? Right. So it works well in contexts where a lot of the risks are insured. So in real estate, you have insurance. And rather than set up 10 different LLCs for 10 properties, what you do is you set up one master series LLC and you create these daughter series or cells within that larger umbrella. And they don't need to be filed with the Secretary of State. So there's no maintenance fees associated with each one of those daughters. Each one of them are basically just under that one administrative fee associated with that mothership. So it's really kind of exciting because you know, it almost turns that entrepreneur into their own one-man secretary of state where they can sort of print off series whenever they want. And uh, now the question is between these horizontals, because normally think of a, a corporation, the reason people incorporate is to protect their personal assets from business liabilities. You create the shield there to try to keep the lightning that's hitting your company from going up and hitting your bank account. 
And so, and that works really well. Questions of horizontal shields where you start creating these different houses. If lightning hits one of the houses, you know, is it going to, not literally, but, you know, some creditor goes after it and they win a big judgment. Is that creditor going to have a right to go after the assets in the other houses? And so far, there's been no case that I'm aware of where they've been able to penetrate those veils horizontally. So it's become a much bigger item. There's probably over 100,000 of them now in the United States. Um, Delaware has, like we've got over 1,000 of them just in our company. When did that innovation take place? So it started in 1996. Uh, we started in about 2003, and it started actually for the mutual fund industry because they wanted to set up separate classes of funds and have each fund be able to be operated sort of independently, but not have multiple SEC filings. Because if it's all sort of under one umbrella, it can all go under that one filing. But then what happens is real estate investors sort of started figuring this out, especially during the boom in the late in the sort of mid 2000s. And so these became a little bit more popular as people started doing a ton of real estate investing and didn't want to form separate LLCs. And then even through the 2008 decline, like they're still relatively popular and they're, they're sort of they're growing and sort of catching on. Terrific. John, what a pleasure to have you on. It's been great to see you. Well, thank you, Fraser. It's great seeing you too. Thanks for having me up. Good luck with, uh, good luck with the law firm and Inc. now, and uh, we'll look forward to speaking with you again. We've been speaking with John Williams, the principal of the Williams Law Group in Wilmington, Delaware, and the owner of InkNow.com. We'll be having new podcasts up shortly. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.